Welcome to the Wordsmith Podcast. I'm Josh Bennett, lead pastor of Awakened Church, joined by Jeremy Shane Suggs. Word. And Matthew Grady Calhoun. Hey. Another great day for the Wordsmith Podcast. Great week because for us, this past week, the Georgia Bulldogs defeated the Oregon Ducks 49-3. to Quick thoughts on that game? They look strong. Normally, um, unless my memory fails me, which it does, it takes takes them a couple of games to kind of where where you can kind of say, oh yeah, maybe they're going to yeah. have a good year. Because the first kind couple of games, it's like, man, I don't know. Yeah. But this one, I mean, it's well, like no, they're, they're and even strong. if they do, a first couple of drives at least kind of sputter. But mm-hmm. there's nothing sputtering there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it helped that they were playing Bo Nix. <laughs> that did help. Yes. <laughs> No, I thought they looked really good. Uh, offensively, I mean, if they stay healthy, they could have the most efficient offense uh, probably in the history of Georgia and uh, among probably offenses ever. I mean, Todd Munkin has always been a good offensive coordinator. Um, that's never been an issue for him. But now he has the best athletes he's ever had by yeah. far. And then just the depth that they have, uh, the promising young players they have. Defense to me is still interesting because it – Again, it's only one game, so you don't want to read too much into it. It looks like they're back to the more bend, don't break kind of Kirby, early yeah. Kirby style than last year, because obviously last year they blitzed a great deal. But again, that's only one game, and I, I didn't, I've, I've still only seen highlights of the second half. I didn't even see the second half as entirety. Yeah. But just from the first half and then from the highlights I saw, it seemed they were more of the kind of, we're going to let you dink and dunk, yeah. but once again, the red zone, we're going to shut you down. Uh, which, grand, that is mostly modern football nowadays. Yeah. Well, a couple thoughts on that. One, there's a lot of young players on the defense. That's right. Yep. And those young players are going to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you could tell the inside linebackers that were young were just – they're fast players, but they were a step slow because they were thinking. Maybe by game five or six they'll stop thinking. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then secondly, you typically don't blitz when you're dominating your opponent. Sure. So I think we'll see more of that um, when they need to. I loved my favorite takeaway was the new Georgia punter is an Australian. And um, I don't remember exactly how to say his name, Thor. They're calling him Thor. Um, anyway, he tweeted his takeaway from game one was that Stetson Bennett hates Australians because mm-hmm. he only got to punt one time. <laughs> he did, only one. <laughs> so, and it was a great punt. It was a great punt, which was uh, – I was looking at that because the, all the reports out of campus that punting has been atrocious. Mm. And so – and we had a really good punter last year. Mm-hmm. Um, or last couple of years, Jake Camarda has been solid. Uh, in his first couple of years, he had some up and down moments, but oh, sure, last sure, year sure. was really, really good. I'm on a message board called the Dog Vent, and the Dog Vent can find anything to complain about. Even when the Dogs won the national championship, they were complaining about, well, we could have lost if this. There was zero complaining on Saturday. <laughs> they could not find anything to complain about. Sure. And it, wow. you, uh, by Monday, they had figured out some things to complain about. But oh, sure. um, it was just <laughs> like, wow, what is this? But usually that place is like an atomic war on game day. It's just every question and every call and yeah. criticizing everybody. Man, it was all smooth sailing. So mm-hmm. it was pretty good. All right, well, let's move into our conversation card of the day. And I am really interested in hearing your answers to this. What's your ideal social outing? It's really tough because I am um, uh, I'm I bend towards the introverted side of the spectrum, so um, we don't necessarily go out a lot. So I don't. Sure. My ideal social outing would be a small social gathering, you know. Sure, yeah. And it would be ideally, it would be I would know everybody there, like you yeah. know, it would be like strangers there. I get that. Uh, I kind of know everybody there. And, you know, so it'd be smaller with people that I know, maybe at the beach. Okay. So I, that that would be sort of the, the environment. I don't mean mm-hmm. I, I hadn't really had time to think about all the particulars, but oh, the sure, kind sure. of big picture thing would be yeah. small group at the beach. I know everybody there. Yeah, I think uh, I think that was the kind of the idea behind the question was it was a general yeah. thing, not a, a precise We didn't want to thing. know what you were having for lunch. Yeah. But. <laughs> Unless you just want to tell Mahi, mahi. Hey. Tacos. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to give two because I, my main answer, I know our audience well enough, there's going to be a couple of people who would argue it's not a social outing, and they are wrong. Uh, my main and truthful answer uh, is actually a theater. Theater room with uh, strangers that I don't know especially well. So basically the exact opposite anti- of my answer. <laughs> Yours is the ideal anti-social outing. <laughs> I, I Again, I would argue, especially if it's a really good movie, 
you are experiencing something together with a group of people. There's been several times where I've seen movies, and it was just sort of like, man, this was a special thing that we all kind of. But did. are you we, technically we being social? Nodded. Well, you can be because you can talk about the movie. You can you know you give the head nod, say hello. <laughs> what did you think about this? I've had a couple of those instances, not a lot. Matt's um, hugging people in the lobby after the movie. I don't think yeah, I've never after Columbus. done that. Actually, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I had to watch Columbus on a TV screen. So uh. says me a day. Anyway, uh, no. So for example, when I was in Texas, I went to the theater near me all the time. It was theater room eighteen was where they would show all the weird movies that I love that most other people don't love. Um, and it was a very small room. It was four rows up front. Then they had a, a handicap area, just kind of general like. Come yeah. in, come out, kind of hall, not a hallway, but whatever you would call yeah, that. Right. And then they had two rows of like up close seating or whatever. So it was a very small room. It was basically like room they had left over. So they decided to convert into a room. And that's where they would show like these limited release, kind of artsy, fartsy kind of movies. And I remember I watched Room with like me. And it was, I would, because my schedule wasn't set back then, I would go and do the matinee and I would only pay like $4 for a movie or something like that. Um, so it would always be me and retired people. Uh, <laughs> now, did you see the same people at the at the theater on a couple uh, occasions? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so I we we watched the movie Room, which is a very kind of emotional movie. Uh, Brie Larson won a, uh, an Oscar for it. Anyway, um, and I just remember like we left and like we all kind of met eyes. It was me and like five other people. We all just kind of met eyes and just like missed those experience. We all did together. One poor lady, the movie's emotional in nature. She couldn't last 10 minutes. She started crying and she just left and she never came back. I have no idea what she ended up doing that day. Um, all right, so that's my truthful answer that uh, multiple, uh, many of our listeners will disagree and say it's not a social outing. So my other answer would be, I haven't done this much. I've only done it probably four or five times in my life. But a sort of like large coffee place cafe kind of style and they have like an open mic night or something like that or there's an artist there not well known who's just playing kind of gently behind you can stop and listen to him for a bit or you can kind of talk with other people there or if you came with a small group or something you were two or three other people that would be my other answer to that because i don't there's just something about that i i thoroughly enjoyed and remember it now there's a coffee shop there in Bryan, texas another texas reference or me and a couple of friends did that a couple of times yeah, I can see I can see both of those fitting your personality very very well. Yeah, so. still not a lot of busyness, not a whole lot of activity, to, things to distract me, which I'm, I'm easily distractible. But there's still that sort of you're there with other group of people. Did you say distractible? Did I? I'd have to go back and listen. I don't know. <laughs> I'm easily distractible. I feel like that's I'm easily distractible. Is that a word? Distracted. I'm easily distracted. I feel like distractible still word. I could be wrong about that. Well, if I'm have, wrong, we'll have you, to your listeners it. will never hear this. Like I will edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my favorite social outing is quite broad and only has two requirements. One, I don't have to plan it. And two, I don't have to worry about whether anybody else is enjoying themselves. No. Because so most, this is like a mythical universe you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I here. mean, because most social outings, I want, I either plan sure, or yeah. it's church related. I'm like, man, I hope they're having a good time. Oh, I hope they don't feel isolated. Oh, I hope that, you know, and, and, and I mean, it's not mythical. I it could happens. Say, well, no, because I could see if you didn't plan it, you would worry about what the plan is. Actually, no, I, I, because that would have been true 10 years ago. But because now I can just appreciate not having to plan something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and it happens. I mean, there are certain times where, I, I don't have to worry about whether people are having a good time, and I didn't plan it, and I'm just there. It's very rare, but it does happen, and, man, it is glory. That, yeah. And here's why, because that's the only time I really can relax sure. in a social outing. And um, it's not that I don't enjoy social outings at church or whatever, but not I am sure. always thinking about you know yeah, yeah, yeah. other people. You, and It's, it's sure. a different kind of enjoyment, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so... When I, you know, for example, one of my favorite social outings is um, the guys that I hunt with will go like hunt in the morning and then we'll kind of camp out the afternoon, cook, grill, and then hunt in the evening. I love it because I'm not worried about everybody else is just doing their thing. I'm doing my thing. I'm just sitting in my chair, eating a piece of fish or whatever Mm -hmm. and just totally relaxed. Love it. I also thought about um, for you, like a cruise ship kind of environment or whatever. Oh gosh, I love cruises. Yeah. Never been. 
Never been. And it definitely would not have made my like ideal social outing. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be on a ship where I can't see land? No, yeah. thank see, you. See, I mean, it is my favorite vacation. And again, I don't have to plan anything. That's they plan right. everything yeah. for you. They and, have more than enough. And I certainly don't care if anybody else on the cruise ship's having a good time. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just going to have a good time myself. And I'm not even worried about if my wife's having a good time because she's going to have a good time too. So. Yeah. It's, um, those, that's my ideal situation. I'm trying to talk Sawyer. Uh, our kids get experiences for birthdays. We don't do presents. We do trips and stuff. I'm trying to talk Sawyer into like a three-day cruise out of Jacksonville or something. Mm-hmm. Be great. That that would be a weird request from a ten-year-old. Yeah, but man, there's like water. Hey, slides. what do you want to do for your birthday? You're ten. You're a boy. See, like. Uh, ne- I want to go on a cruise. So you, like, you've just, never been on a cruise. There are water slides. I'm just saying that's there not are... a normal like. Yeah, but I'm request. I'm, I'm, I'm prompting. So Sawyer, yeah. as you listen to this, think about the glorious, perfect day at Coco Cay. Mm. Water slides. Sawyer, you do you. Beach, ocean. <laughs> no pressure. Three day cruise. Get three days for your birthday. All right, I'm done with my sales pitch to my ten year old for his birthday. Finn, if Sawyer doesn't. Come through for me, buddy. Mm. All right. Um, Let's move on today as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. We are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. Pastor Matt, would you read those for us? Yes, sir. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So when I was outlining um, the Sermon on the Mount for this series, I called this passage Doing Hard Things. Because, I mean, quite frankly, Jesus calls us to do some pretty difficult um, things here and the first thing that he addresses in this portion of the scripture is about this idea of taking oaths and not taking oaths. And oaths would have been a common thing they would have taken in their culture and specifically back in the Old Testament. What does he mean when Jesus says not take an oath? And why is he addressing this in this Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think he addresses all these things because what I, the, the, the intent over this whole section. Mm-hmm is that Jesus is trying to correct, he's trying to do the correct teaching and application of the law because the Pharisees had been wrongly teaching and thus wrongly applying mm-hmm. the actual law. Um, so he's trying to clarify and straighten it out um, sure. because that's, so I don't, I don't think he's talking about here like you, you can't actually take an oath. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it was more of the sort of a, uh, flippant manner in which people yeah. were doing oaths like like a modern day version would be like if somebody said i swear to god like i'll do this or sure. whatever um i think it would have been more like he said don't don't do those things but because we see that in the new testament oaths are still a thing i mean they're they're still living and and doing oaths so it's, he's not saying don't do it at all i think he's talking about the manner in which they they were teaching and doing it um, and how they were doing it. Sure. Well, and there was also an uh, attitude here that the Pharisees were using oaths to get out of just normal truth-telling. So, in other words, it would be like me lying to you and you say, man, I can't believe you lied to me. Like, well, I didn't promise you. I didn't take an oath that I was telling you the truth. And so there was this nature of if they didn't take an oath, Mm -hmm. then they weren't being honest because it was only you had to be honest when you were taking an oath by the letter of the law. And Jesus was simply saying, no, let 
Tell the truth. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't require of yourself to make an oath to actually yeah. tell the truth and keep your word. Yeah, I, I think that was even one of the, the commentaries I read was talked about the idea that sometimes there's evidence that the Pharisees, so they knew you couldn't take an oath by the temple, for example. So they would say something to the effect of, by the gold on the temple. So if then if they broke that, uh, if they didn't keep that oath or whatever, they broke that promise essentially, they'd be like, well, I didn't do it on the temple, I did it on the gold on the temple. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that's really, because again, this whole idea and this whole context that we're dealing here with, as, as Pastor Shane was alluding to, is this idea that Jesus is dealing with the heart, whereas the Pharisees were so caught up with their hands and what they could do with their own selves. Mm-hmm. He's saying, no, this all goes deeper. This goes deeper to what's actually coming out of your heart. And I think he's trying, it's not a, a literal interpretation to where you can't take oaths, although there are, have been Christians throughout the ages who have interpreted it that way. Um, I do believe it's more in line of the fact that you don't need to make oaths, you don't need to make promises, you don't need to make vows that you don't in your heart have any intention of actually going through with. I think it's wise to remember the third commandment in the Ten Commandments here, where he talks about don't take the Lord's name in vain. That passage, as, as sure if you've ever heard somebody teach or preach on it before, it's not talking about don't using God's name, adding it to a cuss word, even though you shouldn't do that, and there's other passages you could apply that to. The main idea of that third commandment is if you make a vow, if you say you're going to do this in God's name, you need to actually be doing it for His honor and for His glory. You don't need to use God's name in a way to get what you want or manipulate people mm-hmm. or, or anything like that. It's this kind of broader idea than what ten, people tend to immediately think about. And I think that's what he's saying here, is that God is to be revered and to be honored, and you are his children, right? If you're his children, if you're his little ones, you need to live in such a way, both with your vows, with your promises, the things you uh, commit yourself to, that you are doing it for his honor, for his service, that Paul obviously alludes to, do whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. This is kind of what Paul uh, draws that from, or one of the places he draws that from. As I was reading over this yesterday, I was thinking about the TV show Survivor. And um, Survivor, if you're not familiar, they put people on a remote location and they vote each other out. And there is an immense amount of lying. And so I think when the show first began, there was kind of a general consensus that when people were talking to you, you assumed they were telling you the truth. Mm-hmm. And then as the, pl- as the shows went on and on, it's just more lies. And now it's to the point where you just assume people are lying to you. And so they keep like upping their level of um, oaths that they take. Well, I promise on my child's life or I promise on my dead mother. And it's like, but it's because they have no intention of keeping these truths, but they're trying to convince somebody Mm -hmm. that they are. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me of these oaths and the roles that it played with the Pharisees and um, can in our lives as well. And ultimately Jesus gets down to that heart issue. Yes. Be yes. No, Mm -hmm. be no. And as a believer, that should be just a general practice in our life that people can trust our word and take us at our word. Um, he moves on to talk about, he, you have heard it said, and of course he's quoting the Old Testament here, pretty much any time you've heard Jesus, I mean Jesus says, you've heard it said, he's mm-hmm. return, referring to the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other one. So how do we balance a situation like this where Jesus is taking a clear teaching out of the Old Testament that says, look, you get an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but Jesus is saying, don't do that. You, you actually should just turn the other cheek. How do we balance those two um, teachings, and what does that look like in our lives? Yeah, um, well, I think context is always king. As I feel like we say that probably every sure. other episode. Sure. So if you go Can't back... enough. Yeah. <laughs> if you go back to Exodus, uh, where the tooth for tooth, eye for eye, uh, one of the passages it comes from, the idea there is that you can't harm someone. If someone harms you... That doesn't give you, or if they fail you, or if they broke an oath or something to you, that doesn't give you the right to respond the, any way you want to. It doesn't give you a right to just fly off the handle. So if someone lies to you, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to chop your head off. And it sounds right. that sounds like that's an obvious overreaction to us, right? Well, we live in modern societies, liberal, uh, democratic, liberal societies, where we have strong sense of law. We have strong sense of uh, bound community uh, rules and guidelines, whereas during the Old Testament, it was it was like the Wild West, but on acid, so to speak. So you would have this. You would have people who would just fly off the handle. So when it says uh, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye, it's just like if someone harms you in this way or someone fails you in this way, you have the right to respond 
up to what they did, but you can't go to the next right. level. Right, an it, eye for an eye, but yes. nothing more. Yes. Yeah. That, a body that's, for an eye. That's the, yeah. uh, the yeah. general context of the original command, is this idea you can't just be these wild, violent people. Uh, it, the Vengeance is the Lord. It's not yours. It's right. not yours to figure out. Uh, a silly example that came to my mind when I thought about this was I love the show The West Wing. If you've listened to previous uh, previous seasons, you've heard me talk about that. There's an episode of The West Wing called A Proportional Response. So The West Wing follows a fictional president, uh, Josiah Bartlett. So in one episode, Josiah Bartlett has to get checked by a Navy medical doctor, which is a normal thing for presidents to do. It's just kind of a regular checkup thing. And he's requested a specific guy to do it because he likes that specific guy. They just have a good rapport. He gets along. He makes them feel easy. So you get to meet the, the specific guy who does it for him. He, uh, is a, he just recently got married and just recently had a child. And it's his first child. It's first this little girl. They talk about little girl in the episode. And then towards the end of it, the doctor mentions, well, I, I can't do it next time because I'm actually going to go to Iran. I have a, a medical leave, uh, medical mission I have to go on for a couple weeks, and then I'll come back. So I'll see you in a couple weeks. Then at the very end of that first episode, you discover that the plane that he was on got shot down by Iranian rebels or whatever, and he and 40 other Americans were killed. And Josiah Bartlett, and again, he's an early president, his first term, and he's just like, I want to rain down God's thunder and wrath on these people. So he goes to the, the situation room or whatever they call it, and the, the military people give him, this is what a proportional response would be, your president, your, uh, Mr. President. And he's like, what is the value of a proportional response? How, how is this good? They know we're going to strike them. But we, they know we're going to knock out their communications. They know that we're going to blow up that, that uh, armory or whatever. They've already removed their people. This is not a proportional response or whatever. And they have to explain to him, like, no, this is just how it works. You have the power, all the power of the world. You have the power of the U.S. military. You cannot just seek vengeance. Use it and in your own expense. You have to follow the sort of rule of law and respond proportionally and not start a war or start um, an international conflict just because your own emotions are involved in the situation. Right. And that's kind of what truth, uh, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye was. It's just like you have to remove any sort of law, any sort of rule. You have to remove your emotions so that you can respond proportionally. Yeah, and I think in, in the Old Testament that was part of the civil law, which would have kind of lent itself to this This was limiting uh, civil retribution, like sure. civil, uh, like, like the law couldn't punish you more than what, you know what you had had broken, but right. more likely the Pharisees were teaching it more in a personal obligation. Mm-hmm. Like if they hurt you, you hurt them back. Like you know right. you it's it's so they kind of they were again they were teaching it wrong because they were like, hey, if if they do this, you're obligated to do this mm-hmm. back. Uh, and so that would have been an incorrect teaching. But uh, and for most commentators that I've I've read, at, turning the other cheek. That whole passage, culturally, from what I understand, was it wasn't talking about physical harm. Um, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn to them the other one. That's a deep personal insult. That that was kind yeah. of a a cultural idiom. Yeah, idiom that that they would have like like I don't know if y'all remember like when the 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 guy George Bush was doing some sort of press conference and the guy threw a shoe at him yeah. and everybody's like what. That's really weird. Like, why would he? It was a cultural thing. Like, yeah. you know, in that culture, that would have been like, I, I deeply oppose you or sure, something sure, like sure, that. Sure. So, um, slapping someone in the cheek, it wasn't talking about, though it could have led to that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily talking about actually slapping someone on the cheek. It, it wasn't saying you, you can't protect yourself from bodily harm. He wasn't, you know, saying that. He was saying, like, hey, if someone deeply insults you, you got he's he's talk, he's speaking against personal retribution mm-hmm. like you don't get no war of words sometimes people need to um remember that on facebook just because they insult you deeply you don't have to um comment back i know it's hard sometimes but you don't have to man and you can watch that play out somebody post something on facebook and then just read the comments and it's oh, like sure. they i get my eye for yeah. your eye and now i'm taking your tooth for my tooth and it just yeah. man it gets worse and worse we're taking your lung for my lung kind of thing <laughs> it um for sure man social media is just I think it reveals to us what's really in our hearts. Oh, but sure, yeah. We won't go off on that tirade. So even though you have a right for an eye, to, for an eye, Jesus said, you don't have to take that. Yeah. In fact, maybe you shouldn't take that. Mm-hmm. You know, you if somebody insults you, you don't have to go, well, I got to insult you back. 
Right. Um, even though the the Word of God gives you the Old Testament law, the traditions there gives you the right to that, you don't have to take that. And Jesus said, that's not what my kingdom is about. Because again, we're going back to the heart. It's not about following the law by the letter. It's about his kingdom and his way. And he, Jesus said, my way is not about vengeance. No. It's not about repaying. And you know, then we look at our spiritual condition and go, man, if the Lord gave us an eye for an eye or a tooth yeah. for a tooth, if we got what we deserved, um, because that's, that's the phrase you would hear if somebody wrongs you. Well, I'm going to give them what they deserve. Well, if we got what we deserved, it would be an eternity in hell um, for our sins. And so Jesus, quite frankly, turned the other cheek for us, and he's calling us to do the same thing. Again, difficult to do. Sure. That's sure. why I call this doing hard things. Jesus is calling us to do a lot of those there. So then he goes on a little bit farther with this and says... As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks of you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And so that's pretty self-explanatory way of saying, but my question is, should there be a limit on how far believers go when allowing others to take advantage of them? Yes. I would I would say and it all and how it, do we find that limit? It, well, here's here's the deal. it it almost um, is implicit in the text. He, he he says if he goes if he asks you to go one mile, you go two. He, he's saying go above and beyond. Obviously, that, yeah. I mean that's what he's saying in the text. But he didn't say hey just just keep going. You know what I'm saying? Like he mm-hmm. doesn't leave it open ended. He says hey if he goes with you one if he asks you to go one mile, you go two. If he asks you to give your your tunic, you give your coat as well. So he's saying go above and beyond, but he implicitly sets a limit there. It doesn't necessarily say what that limit is, but it is at least implied that there is a limit. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I I mean, let's be honest. With this passage, we tend to approach it like, hey, what? Well, how's how much? How much is enough? How yeah. much? Who is, is my neighbor? Is it, yeah, yeah we we find clever ways to get around. What ultimately Jesus, <laughs> what Jesus is telling us to do is like, look, if you're going to follow me, people are going to take advantage of you from time to time. There's just no way around that. That doesn't mean that you allow it to go on and on forever, but you have to have that posture to be so secure that I, I am a child of God by grace. I am secure in Him. Jesus' life is my life. That means I can deal with sufferings. I can be deal with... Uh, uh, name calling, being told lies about to a point, because I'm secure in Him. But I don't think that doesn't that means we then throw away any other um, uh, any other restrictions on the idea. It just means that's where we have to start. It says earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, "Blessed are the merciful, why? For they will be shown mercy." Right. Um, so we do have to show others mercy. We do have to show grace to them. Um, not on the merit that if they deserve it or not, because if it, that was the case, it wouldn't be mercy and would be grace. So yeah, I think if you're sin- sincerely trying to follow Jesus, there are going to be times where you're going to have to open yourself up to people uh, letting you down, breaking your heart, hurting you in a way. But it doesn't mean you go on forever and ever, ever like that. An example of this would be, so Paul was a Roman citizen. There were times where he denied his Roman rights, and there's times he called on his Roman rights. Right. Uh, another example in, in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul's talking to uh, believers who were slaves, he says, look, if you were a slave when you were called by the Lord, it, it might be best for you to remain that way, but if you're able to be free, by all means be free. So he's saying, look, if, if, if you can stop being a slave, it, that would be ideal. <laughs> but if you're not in that situation, then look, the Lord called you in this situation, he's going to see you through it. So we, we have a right to know that there's a stopping point. It's just we have to be slow about that. Yeah. And, the, and, and the fact that we have these sinful hearts where it's like, if anybody does anything to me, I want to get them back, and sometimes I want to get them back like tenfold, because <laughs> that's just the ugliest of my own yeah. heart. Uh, so we, we, we have to keep that in mind as we're, we're kind of working through passages like this. And I think you have to pray for wisdom and discernment yeah, in absolutely. those situations, because every... Every and and like for a church, we had to. That's why we had to set policies about you know certain things in, in in that area because you're you're dealing with an an institutional type thing instead of a personal. Because he's talking about personal here, not not necessarily like a like an organization or an institution or whatever. Because because that would be 
a little different, if, if that makes sense. Um, but I think he's talking about person. So you have to pray for, you know, insight, clarity, discernment, all those uh, sorts of things. Because every single person in every single situation is going to be different. We've all heard it said, probably, or maybe it's been said to us or um, hopefully not about us. But, you know, the, they say there's famous from Cool Hand Luke. Uh, but he said, there's some men you just can't reach. Like there's some people you just can't help. They're not, they really don't want help. You know, they're, you know, they're looking to take advantage of you in this moment. And, you know, when they can no longer take advantage of you, they'll move on. And so I, but then there are some people who are in the exact same situation. They truly do want help. So I think that's where the discernment and the wisdom comes in, like, because sometimes you're willing, like, hey, I really do believe they want, they really want help. They really want, you know, out of this or that or help with this or that. And so, you know, in those situations, you may go down the road with them a little bit further than someone who's just trying to use you and go on. Well, and I think there's two extremes here. The one extreme is let people endlessly take advantage of you. The other one is to go, I'm never going to let anybody take advantage of me. Right. And, in all of these things, it's best to avoid the extremes. Yeah. Sure, know? sure. And, and really just to get our heart in the right place and go, you know what, if I do get taken advantage of, that's okay. I'm not going to intentionally get taken advantage mm-hmm. of. When it becomes obvious to me somebody's trying to take advantage of me, then I'm not going to allow that. But I'm also not going to be on the other side to where I'm so worried about being taken advantage of that I don't follow the heart of what Jesus is calling me to here. Yeah. And so Jesus keeps getting more difficult and giving us harder things to do. And now he says, you know what? I actually want you to love your enemies, you know, those people that are out to kill you. And this immediately makes me think about uh, the passage that Pastor Matt preached this past Sunday, Romans chapter 5, when it says that God saved us while we were his enemies. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so Jesus not calling us to do anything that he didn't do himself. How do we do this difficult thing of loving our enemies? Because nobody's going to go, you know what, that's easy. That's easy for me, love people that are hateful to me, spiteful to me, attack me. Like I always cringe people. Uh, you hear people say, "Man, I love everybody." No, you no, you don't. Like nobody does. You you can't. That's right up there with I love them, but I don't like them. Yeah, <laughs> um, man. I just I love everybody, and and you know I um I, I understand this, but no, nobody nobody truly does. I guess, but I, I think to you just kind of start with prayer. You, I mean, absolutely, and. and and here's the, like, I, I truly believe this. If you sincerely, and I learned this uh, a long time ago from a, a great teacher in my home church, shout out Tony Mitchell. It is really hard to hate and be critical of somebody you are truly praying for. Mm-hmm. If you are earnestly praying for someone else in, in, in that prayer, in that moment, in, in that season of your life, it is really hard to hate them and be critical of them at the same time. It, mm-hmm. it, I would say it's even impossible. He would say, you know, it's impossible to do both of those. You're either doing one or you're doing the other. Yeah, no, I think that that's. I think you have to begin with prayer. I think you have to begin with this idea that this is not something you can do on your own strength. Especially if we're talking in context here. He's talking. He's not just talking about somebody who's like mean to other people. Like he's talking about somebody who, who, who kills and harms people. Sure. Um, who who. Uh, the, the most vile of the vile, so to speak. And for the early um, church would be lived out in the people that persecuted yes, them. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think I think that's where you start. I think another thing you have to remember when it comes to loving your enemies is to love your enemy is not to say you st- you're, there's not anger there or there's not still hurt there from them harming sure. you. There's not to say there isn't still the matter of justice, especially when we're talking about you know murder and uh, other things like that. I think it's just normal for us to struggle with that. But it's sort of like what you do, the, the greatest evidence of what's in your heart is, is your actions, so to speak. So if someone is being cruel to you and you are still managing to be kind to them, you're still managing to put their needs before your own, that is an example of you loving them, even if there's still anger there, even if there's still... You have to stop every now and then and be like, Lord, please help me. Let me go of this anger. Let me let go of this bitterness. Just because you're struggling with that aspect doesn't mean that you're failing to love them. And you have to be cautious about that. And I think sincerely, anybody that the Holy Spirit is in their heart, he's going to work with them. He's going to convict them. And in times where it's broken, he's going to comfort them and help them through this. 
Um, so I, I think just this idea of even as someone who's being cruel or mean to you, you just have to start with the idea, all right, how do I treat them like I want to be treated? It kind of goes back to the golden rule. How do I still, even with this anger and this bitterness in my heart, as I'm struggling with it and I'm trying to work through it, how do I treat them the way I know Christ calls me to treat them? And just spend time praying about that and, and ministering on that and, and wondering about that. And I'm, I'm confident the Lord will give you guidance there. But it's this is a sort of thing. It's hard to give practical advice to something like this, because yeah. one, none of us are good at this. Yeah. I don't think anybody's like I'm great at loving my enemies. I'm fantastic at that. And, and then two, every situation is different. Yeah, the great late C.S. Lewis had an hey. amazing way of simplifying things for the believer, especially in his book um, Mere Christianity. He addresses this idea of loving your enemy. He says the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering with whether you love your neighbor. And I think you've said this before, Pastor Matt. Sure. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, and you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian man has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking mm-hmm. at the beginning. And so C.S. Lewis is saying, you know, don't try to perfect this in the idea of, man, I just want to get better at loving enemies, just start loving them or acting like you did. Start being nice to people you can't stand, mm-hmm. and you'll find yourself liking more and more people. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in our for our deep dive in just a minute. And today we're really going to be diving into the practical side of how we live out and how we've seen these difficult truths lived out in our lives and the lives of others. We are back for our deep dive, and today we want to look at the practical side of living out these passages. So let me ask you this. How have you seen God use the difficult things in these passages to bring glory to his name? And how have you seen them lived out in the lives of others and in yourself? Are y'all waiting on me to answer first? <laughs> I don't know. Just looking at you. Um, you know, I'll, I'll jump in with a small one first. You know, this idea of loving your enemies, and, and this would probably be a stretch to call the person my enemy, but the principle still applies I remember when I was in college, I applied for a job to work at Camp Caleb one summer, and I was really excited about this job until I found out that there was another guy that was going to be working at that camp that summer that I did not like at all. Um, I did not like him so much that when I found out he was working there, I contemplated changing my plans for the summer. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. Looking back now, I can't tell you exactly why I disliked the guy, but I really, really disliked the guy, and I hope he doesn't listen to this because he'll know who he was. But this idea of what C.S. Lewis said, you know, treat people like you like them. And uh, I remember the first week that I was working at camp, I was still pretty bitter about having to spend the summer with this guy that I really didn't like. But I'd went to um, the local Walmart there and bought a drink that you could only get in Kentucky or in Cincinnati, Ohio called L8, a late one. It is a ginger ale, fruity ginger ale. And um, I had gotten a six pack of those and got it ice cold. And I walked out one night, and he was sitting out on the table. And I said, hey, man, you want like a little picnic table out in between the cabins? I said, hey, you want a L8? And he's like, sure. And we sat there, and we talked about our day. And that became a nightly tradition for the entire summer. And uh, we sit there, and we drink an L8 every night, and we talk about life and different things. And by the end of that summer, not only was I glad that I did the job, I had developed a deep friendship with someone mm. who I could not stand six weeks earlier. Mm. And um, I think... That when I read this passage, this quote from C.S. Lewis, and think about treating people like you like them, even though you don't, you eventually start liking them. Saw that lived out, you know, quite frankly. And then I also think about these things that Jesus is calling us to do. And I realize 
that there's nothing that we can look at in the life of Jesus where we didn't see that he lived out these very principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think about people spitting at him on the way on the way to the cross and insulting him and how difficult it must be to be the son of God and to be mocked for claiming that you're the son of God. Mm-hmm. And how difficult it is to die for people that don't deserve it. And Jesus did all of the things that he's calling us to do, mm-hmm. and it all, did it all for God's glory. Yeah, yeah uh, David Guzik, um, just reading after him, he said one time that uh, it, it was during a larger message that, series that he was preaching, he said he loves to see whenever God totally destroys his enemies. He said, But then he goes on, and you, you realize... It's, it's not in the way you think. He actually destroy, totally destroys his enemies by making them his friends. And he said that that literally destroyed his enemy. He said, now they're my friend. And he told these different stories through that. And he was preaching on this passage, by the way. But it, he told this these stories of these several people that were were like not, well, one of them might have been a, like a bitter enemy. Um, but they were, he would consider them enemies, not friends. And then, but God, through a series of events, turned these people into into his friends that were his enemies. So so literally God ultimately destroyed all of his enemies there. Yeah. And I was like, that's a really cool story. Like hmm. you wouldn't think of it in that because yeah. when he starts out, and I know he was doing it to be provocative, like, man, I just love it when God totally destroys my enemies. And part of you is like, yeah, I do too, you know, but sure. then you kind of realize, but but one of the ways, like one of these where, where we talk about, you know, going the extra mile and, and those sort of things, uh, I've, I've had a few conversations with a few closer friends of mine, and we would talk about when people come up and ask you for money, you know, and usually it's always for me, like at our national convention, you know, usually in a larger city, you get a lot of people to just come up and ask you for money. But in in my hometown of Columbus, it would happen, but not very often. And some some guys, and I always thought this was kind of Pharisee-esque, they would say, man, I'm not not giving any of them – guys money that come up asking me money because I I know all they're going to do is buy alcohol with it and and I get there's there's some sort of wisdom maybe there's some experience there but the thing is they don't know that you don't know if they're st- like they really may need it for what they say they need it for they and and you're just assuming and I don't think God judges you with you I think he wants me to be generous. He wants me to to give, but I think those guys were just using it as a reason not to give because they're just assuming, hey, they're get, they're there to buy alcohol with it. I, I think God will judge them on what they. I think He'll judge me on my charity. He'll judge them on what they actually spent the money for, whether they spent it on what they said they were going to or not. Sure. But I, I come to realize this: if I gave everybody that asked me for it at the end of the year, I'd be out about twenty bucks. You know, yeah. I, I was, I'm like, I'm, I'm really not giving a ton, you know, I mean, I gave to my church and that, but I'm like, if I gave to every guy who came up to me on the street or on a, maybe I'm working on a job site in like a public area and they, Hey, you got a couple of bucks or, you know, I give them three or $4 at the time. If I gave everybody that asked me that whole year, it's like 20 bucks. I'm like, am I so stingy that I couldn't give up 20 bucks mm-hmm. on the chance that it could make somebody's day better. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'll give, give to everybody who asked me. And so that's what I started doing. I was like, Hey, God will judge them if they use it right or not. But, and maybe they are taking advantage of me, but I'm okay with that because uh, I believe that that would have been the right call. But I don't know. That's, that's been kind of my personal experience with some Mm -hmm. of this text today. This would be again on the smaller and simpler aspect of applying this passage. But I, I when I was working at Walmart uh, in Valdosta, I had a guy who would, I mean, I think the most generous way of saying it would pick on me essentially because my Christian convictions, um, just in general, just uh, being committed to the word or whatever, I, he knew I was a pastor. Um, that was a secret, never stayed a secret very long at Walmart. Right, yeah. Uh, it was always other people who were mentioning it. It was very sad with me. Anyway, so he would he would give me a hard time about it from time to time when we were online working on stuff. It was never anything where I, I need to bring it to HR or anything like that, but it was kind of sometimes just aggravating and you just got tired of it. But I thought it would be wiser just to kind of try to make a joke of it from time to time and just kind of diffuse the situation. It, it Again, it went on for, I don't know, four or five months or something like that. And then eventually he just he lost his job. He was part of a, a whole big stupid thing. And that was kind of the resolution of it. And so we didn't become friends at the end. It wasn't the a big happy oh, I was looking for a happy no, ending I know, here. Right? Yeah. It wasn't the big redemptive story or anything like that. 
But, I mean, I do look back on it and be like, I'm glad I, I didn't respond the way uh, on a couple occasions I wanted to. I, I was sure. glad that I just kind of endured it. And then uh, eventually the Lord kind of worked it out in his own timing on uh, how he saw best for it. Uh, and hopefully that guy's doing well now. Uh, maybe it's some better decisions since then. So that was the, my one person example. But I also think, uh, since we're talking about the idea of loving your enemies, that the, another example that I thought of was uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Look, that when you start talking about political stuff, you're, you're looking at, uh, it's never down to one thing. It's multiple sure. things coming yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously there are aspects of it that I, looking back on, I would disagree with some of things that they, uh, some positions they took on different things, blah, 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 blah. But it is powerful to think that, I mean, just a couple of decades ago, you know, there were people who they weren't allowed to work, uh, use the same fountains, the same sidewalks, uh, take out loans. Uh, there's all these kind of things. And the main way that changed was they rallied together and they didn't act back in vengeance or violence, but they just stood their ground. And they were a witness to the rest of the world and to the rest of the country that, hey, you know this is wrong in your hearts. Uh, and I do think that was an example of um, good coming out of people choosing not to respond in anger, not to respond in violence, but to uh, love their enemies. And then another example I thought of, I'm sure you guys have heard of this guy at some point, Daryl Davis. He's the blues musician. He's a black blues musician who over the last 30 or 40 years has basically saved 200 uh, Klansmen, former Klansmen, he would befriend wow. them, and they would come close, and they would realize all the stuff they believed, all the stuff they were taught, because most of the time people were taught stuff like that, was wrong, and they would leave the KKK, they would leave uh, white supremacy, this hate stuff, just because he was patient with them, and he went out of his way to be kind to them and be a friend to them. Uh, yeah. You can Google his name. There's lots of stories on him, NPR, CNN. Uh, they've done stories about him. And he just, for whatever reason, he came huh. to my mind yeah. when I was uh, preparing for this. Yeah, so it was, it, since you brought that up, I, I thought it was, I heard it on the radio the other day. Um, it was a pretty famous portion of MLK's speech where he, he calls it out. He said it's it's morally wrong and sinful, like, but at the same time being being passive. But you still call sin, sin in the public eye. And I don't know, something about that struck a chord with me because it's like it's, you're not, it, it's, it's almost you're not returning hate for hate or, yeah. or you know, fight for fight. Yeah. But you're still saying, hey, this, this, like what Matt said, like, hey, you, in your hearts, you know, this is wrong. He was saying, look, this is sinful. Like, you know, the way you're treating us is very sinful. And I think eventually that, you know, that, that message yeah. won mm-hmm. out, of course. Yeah, sure. So. Well, you know, you think about God's kindness leads us to repentance. And think about that, you know, in application to this. And you go, very seldom I've ever changed my mind because somebody fought me about it. Sure. But because someone yeah. may be overly kind, it'll yeah. make you, you know, re-examine your position. You can never argue someone into the kingdom. Right. And uh, I was thinking... As you were talking about the civil rights movement and all this together, I was thinking about my wife's grandmother several years ago when the movie The Help came out. Um, she went to the theater and watched it, and when the movie was over, she sat there and wept. Hmm. And she said, because I was like that and didn't realize it. Yeah. But because of kindness and because of patience, mm-hmm. our sin gets revealed to us. Yeah. And that's true with God with us, mm-hmm. his kindness towards us, and it's true with us towards other people Absolutely. Um, that it makes us, you know... The story I shared, I mean, the guy wasn't that bad, <laughs> but, you know, the kindness of it revealed to me, you know, who mm-hmm. he was and, and all those things. So um, I do think as we look at these principles, one thing we should always keep in mind in application of them is err on the side of overly generous, yeah. overly giving, overly patient, mm-hmm. overly loving. Um, if we're going to err, I, I think about the great words of um, Mark Rick. Sometime they, one time they said he was accused of being too loyal mm-hmm. when he said, there's worse things to be accused of. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah, because sometimes you are the jerk. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, like, and I'm not saying you were, but in, yeah, like, no, you, didn't probably like, was. you didn't like yeah. this guy because you thought he was a jerk. And, like, this has happened to me before. Right. Uh, I'm not going to say who it was. But, I, like, I was like, man, they're just the biggest jerk and everything. And then you get to you, you get to know him, and then, you know, y'all become friends. You're like, oh, it hit me one day. I was the jerk. Like, I <laughs> yep. was the one being the jerk. Like, exactly. they were just responding to – how bad I was, and I was right. like, never saw it, you know, in, in the yep. moment. So, yep. No, absolutely. All right, that's our deep dive, and we'll be back in just a minute to wrap up with our final thoughts on this passage.
Okay, we're back to wrap up this week's episode of the Wordsmith Podcast. What are your final thoughts on these hard things that Jesus calls us to? I guess if, as I'm thinking about it, we can do hard things like that. That's what kind of like, like, yeah, these are, these are hard teachings. These are hard things to um, apply to our lives, but they can be done and they should be done. Um, just because something's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, try to, to do it or accomplish it. So uh, that, that would be the one truth that I, I would take away from this, that, that even if it's hard, I mean, we can still do it, you know, and through his power. The classic preacher Alexander White, um, when he was a young boy, he almost lost his arm in an accident. In fact, his parents were going to take him to the hospital to have it amputated, and a neighbor um, was a nurse, and she said, no, let me, let me um, nurse him back to health. I think we can save his arm. And so as they were going through therapy and she was nursing his arm, he would scream out in pain, and her response was, I like the pain, I like the pain. And then she would explain to him, because that means you have feeling in your arm and it's healing. So he, as he grew older and became a preacher, would use that in his sermons over and over again. I like the pain. I like the pain. And huh. when we think about these hard things that Jesus is calling us to do, when we truly embrace them, we like the pain because it means spiritual growth has taken place. Mm-hmm. And doing difficult things brings great results in the heart and lives of the believer. And so I thought that was a great way of kind of tying up that call to do these things that are difficult and do cause pain for us sometimes and difficulties. So. Uh, I mean, in Romans 5, it says uh, endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. So it's this idea that, yes, it's hard to endure these sort of things. It's hard to treat somebody the way you want to be treated when they are treating you the way you don't want to be treated. Um, but it is something that God ultimately uses for our betterment and most especially for his own glory and to be a witness to the world around us. Great, great passage today, um, doing the hard things. And Jesus just keeps hitting at the heart week after week in the Sermon on the Mount. And friends, it doesn't ease off for a while. So I've been really enjoying our conversations through this portion of Scripture. And I look forward to continuing those with you guys next week. No matter how you listen to The Wordsmith, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, almost anywhere that podcasts are played. We thank you for listening to us. Like us, share us with a friend, give us a good review. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Wordsmith.